0: Lee Oswald and the occupants of the second police vehicle. The precise location of this vehicle and the arrival of Westbrook, Croy, Tippett, and Lee Oswald at the same time and at the same location is the best indication that Tippett's murder was pre-planned and involved both Lee Oswald and the occupants of the second police vehicle. Each of these men knew they would be meeting at this location at 1 p.m., but only Tippett was unaware of his fate. After closely viewing Tippett's body, Captain Westbrook hurried back to squad car 207, backed up into the alley, and left Sergeant Croy at the scene. Sam Ginyard worked at the car lot across the alley from Virginia Davis' house. Ginyard saw a police car moments after the shooting driving in the alley. This was likely Captain Westbrook, driving car 207, who drove one block west and stopped immediately on Crawford Street, near the Abundant Life Church. Westbrook's short route while driving to the church can be seen by following the green line. Lee Oswald also hurried to the church, and his route can be seen by following the red line. Ted Calloway was working at Deutsch Motors, located on the corner of Patton Street and Jefferson Boulevard. This car lot was across the alley from where Virginia and Barbara Davis lived. Calloway heard the shooting and saw the shooter hurrying south on Patton, at a distance of about 60 feet, Callaway described the shooter as a white male, 27 years old, 5 foot 11, 165 pounds, black wavy hair, fair-complected, wearing a light gray Eisenhower-type jacket, dark trousers, and a white shirt. While Harvey Oswald was sitting in the Texas Theater, wearing a dark brown long-sleeve shirt, the man who shot Tippett, Lee Oswald was wearing a white t-shirt and a light-colored jacket. After the shooter began walking west on Jefferson Boulevard, he disappeared from Callaway's view. Callaway then turned a half a block north to Tenton Patton. Virginia Davis, who had just watched the shooter hurry across her lawn and around the corner of her house, walked over to Tippett's body and saw a policeman at the scene. Virginia Davis told the Warren Commission, Mrs. Davis. We saw the boy cutting across the street. Mr. Bellin. Then what did you do or see? Mrs. Davis. After he disappeared around the corner, we ran out in the front yard and down to see what had happened. Mr. Bellin. Then is that when you saw the policeman? Mrs. Davis. I saw the policeman lying in the street. Mr. Bellin. All right. Did you see or do anything else? Did you see anyone else that you know come up to the policeman? Mrs. Davis, no, sir, there was a lot of people around there. Mr. Bellin, do you remember about what time of day it was? Mrs. Davis, I wouldn't say for sure, but it was around 1.30, 1.30 and 2. Mr. Bellin, all right. After this, did police come out? Mrs. Davis, they was already here. Mr. Bellin, by the time you got out there? Mrs. Davis, yes. Sergeant Croy was the only police officer seen by Virginia Davis moments after Lee Oswald disappeared around the corner of her house. Now, it is important to understand and remember that Harvey Oswald was wearing his blue-gray jacket when he left the rooming house, but he was not wearing this blue-gray jacket when he arrived at the Texas Theater. I believe Harvey Oswald left his blue-gray jacket in police car 207 when he got out of the car and went to the Texas theater. When Westbrook left Sergeant Croy at the scene of the Tippett murder, Croy briefly wore Harvey Oswald's blue gray jacket to cover the upper portion of his police uniform. He didn't want people to know that a policeman was already on site. At 109, a few minutes after the shooter and the man from the police car disappeared from sight, Domingo Benavides got out of his truck and walked about 15 feet to Tippett's squad car. He told the Warren Commission, I sat there for a few minutes. I got out of the truck and I walked over to the policeman and he was lying there and he had looked like a big clot of blood coming out of his head and his eyes really sunk back into his head and just kind of made me feel funny. I guess I was really scared. I went in and pulled the radio, mashed the button, told him an officer had been shot and I didn't get an answer. So I said it again. And this guy asked me whereabouts all of a sudden and i said on 10th street i couldn't remember where it was at the time so i looked up and i seen this number and i said 410 east 10th i put the radio back i mean the microphone back up and this other guy was standing there it is worth noting that benavides's voice is not heard on the police dictabelt nor is his conversation with the police dispatcher recorded on the typewritten police transcript, which would have recorded one hundred eight to one hundred nine p.m. as the time Benavides spoke with the police dispatcher. This is a clear indication the police dictabelt and tapes were altered. The other guy mentioned by Benavides was T.F. Boley, standing by the driver's door of Tippett's patrol car. At 1.10 p.m., Boley spoke briefly with the police officer, and a few minutes later helped load Tippett's body into the ambulance. Bowley said he talked with a police sergeant at the scene. The name of that police sergeant that Bowley talked with was Sergeant Croy, who was the first and only police sergeant on the scene before and during the time Tippett's body was loaded into the ambulance. Now, Warren Reynolds worked at Reynolds Motor's on Jefferson Boulevard across the street from Deutsch Motors and Ted Calloway. Both Calloway and Reynolds saw the shooter walking south on Patton Street near Jefferson Boulevard. Reynolds saw the shooter tuck a gun underneath his belt as he turned the corner and began walking west on the north side of Jefferson Boulevard. Reynolds began to follow the shooter by walking parallel to him, but on the south side of Jefferson Boulevard. After walking a half block west, the shooter turned right at the Baloo Texaco station. He then hurried through the parking lot behind the station and crossed the alley at the rear of the Abundant Life Church. Jimmy Burt, who hurried to 10th and Patton moments after the shooting, followed the shooter as he walked south on Patton Street. Burt continued walking south on Patton, following the shooter, who was wearing a a light colored Eisenhower type jacket. Bert watched as the shooter turned right and began walking west on Jefferson. When Bert reached the alley, which is between Jefferson Boulevard and Tith, he looked westward and he saw the shooter hurrying across the alley. And that alley was between the Texaco parking lot and the backside of the Abundant Life Church. The shooter was still wearing the light-colored Eisenhower-type jacket when he crossed the alley. In other words, the shooter had not discarded his light-colored Eisenhower-type jacket in the parking lot. That's important. It's very important. Lee Oswald hurried to car 207, parked on Crawford Street next to the Abundant Life Church, and got into the car as Westbrook quickly drove away. Now, Reynolds crossed Jefferson Boulevard and began walking through the car lot, but he lost sight of the shooter. When Lee Oswald met up with Captain Westbrook in car 207, he probably told Westbrook that someone was following him. To Captain Westbrook, this person, like Domingo Benavides, posed another very serious threat. It didn't matter if Benavides actually saw Lee Oswald getting into a police car. It only mattered if Captain Westbrook thought he did because Warren Reynolds could then connect the man who shot Officer Tippett with the Dallas police. For Westbrook, this is potentially a very serious problem. Westbrook soon learned the identity of this unknown man by reading police reports of interviews with witnesses. Once Westbrook had identified the troublesome witness, the problem could be solved. Could this be the reason that Reynolds, like Domingo Benavides' brother, was shot in the head two months later? On January 22, 1964, FBI agents Kessler and Mitchum showed a photograph of Lee Harvey Oswald to Reynolds, at which time Reynolds advised the two agents that he would hesitate to definitely identify the man shown in the photograph as the shooter. The following day, January 23rd at 9 p.m., Warren Reynolds was shot in the head with a 22 caliber rifle. The prime suspect was Daryl Wayne Garner, and he was arrested. Betty McDonald, a former stripper at Jack Ruby's Carousel Club, provided an alibi for Garner, and he was released. Question. Who in the Dallas Police Department authorized his release? Hmm. Two weeks later, on February 13th, Betty McDonald was arrested for disturbing the peace. The next morning, she was found dead, hanging from the cell ceiling in the jail cell with her Torridor trousers. After being shot in the head, Warren Reynolds changed his mind and identified Harvey Oswald as the shooter. Domingo Benavides and Warren Reynolds may have had the information necessary to link Captain Westbrook Croy and the Dallas Police Car 207 with the murder of Officer Tippett but not if they were eliminated. Captain Westbrook picked up Lee Oswald near the Abundant Life Church and drove him to the Texas Theater. At first, Westbrook's driving Lee Oswald to the Texas Theater may seem bizarre, but minutes after Tippett was killed, the Dallas police were hunting for the suspect who was last seen walking west on Jefferson Boulevard. If Lee Oswald had been stopped and arrested by the police, anywhere between 10th and Patton and the Texas Theater, the whole carefully planned operation to blame Harvey Oswald for the murder of President Kennedy and the murder of Officer Tippett would have been compromised. Harvey Oswald, sitting quietly in the Texas Theater when Tippett was murdered, could not be blamed for killing Tippett, nor be blamed for killing President Kennedy if Lee Oswald was arrested. Therefore, it was absolutely necessary that Lee Oswald arrive quickly and safely at the Texas Theater. And who could drive Oswald to the Texas Theater without fear of being stopped by police? Captain Westbrook. A few minutes later, at 1.14, I believe that Westbrook and Lee Oswald arrived in the alley behind the Texas Theater. Lee Oswald gave Westbrook his wallet and his light-colored jacket. Lee Oswald then got out of the police car, walked through the narrow walkway from the alley to Jefferson Boulevard, turned right, and walked to the ticket booth. Lee Oswald did not sneak into the Texas theater. If he was seen sneaking into the Texas theater wearing a white t-shirt, that would be the focus of attention for Julia Postal and Butch Burrows. But the last thing Lee Oswald wanted was to attract attention and risk being confronted by theater employees, and possibly by the Dallas police. I believe that Lee Oswald bought a theater ticket from Julia Postal. I believe he entered the lobby about 116 to 118, but he did not go through the closed doors and into the concession area. Instead, he hurried up the stairs to the balcony while Harvey Oswald was sitting in the lower section. The opening credits for the movie were playing and Butch Burroughs, the ticket taker and concessionaire, was likely working the concession stand behind the closed doors as shown in the photo above. Burroughs could not see Lee Oswald enter the lobby or hurry up the stairs. Inside the theater, Lee Oswald may have met his prearranged contact and given his contact the 38 revolver that he used to kill Tippett. If Lee Oswald gave the 38 revolver to the contact, in the contact may have quietly passed the 38 revolver to Harvey Oswald and left the theater. At this point, Lee Oswald may have tried to leave the theater. He could have walked down the rear stairway and out the exit door that opened onto the alley. Waiting in the alley behind the theater was a young man standing next to a pickup truck with the engine running. If Lee Oswald had left the building, Harvey Oswald would be sitting in the theater with the murder weapon. But Butch Burroughs, standing near the west exit door at the bottom of the stairs to the balcony from the concession stand, may have prevented his departure. After driving Lee Oswald to the Texas Theater, Westbrook quickly drove Police Car 207 back to the Texas Book Depository, arriving about 1.20 p.m. This was the end of Westbrook's 40 minutes of driving Police Car 207 to Oswald's rooming house, to the Texas Theater, to the Tippett shooting, back to the Texas Theater, and returning car 207 to the book depository. Westbrook tried to account for these nefarious 40 minutes by lying to the Warren Commission and telling them that he walked from police headquarters to the book depository. After returning to the book depository, it was very important for Westbrook to be seen at the book depository before getting into his dark blue unmarked police car and driving to Oak Cliff in response to the Tippett shooting. At this point, I want to repeat the sequence of events relating to car 207. Earlene Roberts' identification of police car 207, driving past 1026 North Beckley at 1 p.m. and honking the horn, was a very serious problem. The Warren Commission asked Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry to determine the location of car 207 at 1 p.m., on the afternoon of November 22nd, Officer Jimmy Valentine drove car 207 from police headquarters to the book depository and then helped search the book depository. Captain Westbrook, along with Sergeant Croy, then got into car 207 and drove to Oak Cliff looking for Oswald. Valentine should have been questioned by the Dallas police, the FBI, or the Warren Commission and asked who had access to his police car after he arrived at the book depository but valentine was not questioned by anyone the dallas police resolved this problem with a brief letter of explanation that was prepared and given to chief of police jesse curry who forwarded the letter to the warren commission this letter of explanation claimed that car 207 was parked at the book depository all afternoon but this letter was not written or signed by officer Jimmy Valentine or his sergeant or his lieutenant or his platoon commander Cecil Talbert. This letter was prepared and signed by the man in charge of the personnel department Captain W.R. Westbrook. The man who I believe drove car 207 past Oswald's rooming house with Sergeant Croy and was seen by Earlene Roberts. Following the shooting of Officer Tippett, Sergeant Croy kept a low profile and watched as witness Helen Markham approached Tippett's body lying in the street. Croy then walked to Tippett's body and stood by Helen Markham before the ambulance arrived. Markham told the Warren Commission, quote, this man had a hat on. I thought he was a policeman. Markham may have thought this man was a policeman because Croy was wearing a white police hat, but I believe Croy was also wearing Harvey Oswald's blue-gray jacket, which Harvey Oswald left in car 207 before he got out of the police car and entered the Texas Theater. This jacket covered the upper portion of Croy's police uniform, but Croy did not have a gun. Warren Commission attorney Bert Griffin asked Croy, quote, What did you do when you got there? Croy answered, Got me a witness, a woman standing across the street from me. I don't recall her name, she gave me her name at that time. Griffin asked, how long did you talk with her? Croy said, oh, a good five or ten minutes. In other words, Croy began talking with Markham from the time she knelt down and tried to talk with Tippett. And Croy continued talking with Markham until police units arrived on the scene at 1.22 p.m. Croy told the war commission that he was at 10th and Patton for a good 30 minutes. Croy said, as I got ready to leave, there was another report that he ran into the Texas theater. A man fitting Oswald's description had ran into the theater. Before the ambulance arrived, Croy removed Harvey Oswald's blue gray jacket and placed it over the upper portion of Tippett's body. This was the jacket that Harvey Oswald wore to work, wore in the bus and taxi, was wearing when he left the rooming house and the jacket he left in car 207. This is the blue-gray jacket that Harvey Oswald was wearing when seen by Wesley Frazier's sister, Lily Mae Randall, seen by Roy Milton Jones on the Mercedes bus, seen by William Whaley, seen by housekeeper Ernie Roberts when Oswald left the rooming house. It was left in car 207 and placed on Tippett's body by Sergeant Croy. ambulance driver... Jasper Clayton Butler Jr. told the House Select Committee on Assassinations that after arriving at the scene, he removed, quote, a royal blue coat from Tippett's body. Jasper probably gave this blue-gray jacket to Croy before loading Tippett's body into the ambulance. I believe that after Westbrook arrived at Tenth and Patton and showed fellow officers' identification from his second wallet, Croy gave this jacket to Westbrook. Within the next two weeks, Westbrook gave this coat to William Shelley, who placed the coat on a windowsill in the Domino Room at the Book Depository. This jacket was found on December 16th on a windowsill in the Domino Room at the Book Depository by employee Frankie Kaiser. The Warren Commission identified the jacket as Commission Exhibit 163, The same jacket was identified by Lily Mae Randall. Following the assassination of President Kennedy, Harvey Oswald left the book depository wearing his blue-gray jacket over his long-sleeved dark brown shirt, while Lee Oswald wore a light-colored Eisenhower-type windbreaker over a white t-shirt. Ambulance driver Jasper Clayton Butler told the House Select Committee, I was on the scene one minute or less. With Croy nearby, Tippett's body was loaded into the ambulance before any Dallas police officers arrived and driven to the nearby Methodist Hospital. Butler said, From the time we received the call in our dispatch office until Officer Tippett was pronounced dead at Methodist Hospital was approximately four minutes. Butler's testimony was near perfect. At 1.11 p.m., five minutes after Tippett was shot at 1.06, Dallas Patrolman R.A. Davenport and W.R. Barden were in their patrol car when they heard over the police radio of a shooting on 10th Street in Oak Cliff. While en route to the scene of the shooting, they saw and followed an ambulance to the Methodist Hospital at 1441 North Beckley, which was 1.4 miles from 10th and Patton. Upon arrival, both officers helped get Tippett into the emergency room where he was observed by doctors and nurses as they tried to bring Tippett back to life. Tippett was pronounced dead at 1.15 by Dr. LeCoury. The Warren Commission, however, said Tippett was pronounced dead at 1.25 p.m. That's a 10-minute time difference. In order for Harvey Oswald to be blamed for the Tippett shooting, there had to be enough time for him to leave his rooming house at 1.01 or 102, walk to 10th and Patton, and shoot Tippett at 1.16. But there were many witnesses who said the shooting occurred between 1 o'clock and 1.06, which meant there was not enough time for Harvey Oswald to have walked to 10th and Patton and shoot Tippett. About 1 o'clock p.m., Frank Cimino, who was living in his brother's apartment at 403 East 10th, heard four shots. He ran outside and saw a police car across the street and a police officer lying on the ground. He walked to the police car and briefly stood beside Helen Markham as Officer Tippett lay dying or dead on the street. At approximately 1 p.m., Francis Kenneth heard two or three shots and saw a policeman laying on the pavement near the front of the car. Albert Austin was working as a brick mason on a construction job at the intersection of 10th and Denver. He told the FBI he heard two or three shots around 1 o'clock. He looked in a westerly direction and saw a policeman lying in front of a police car. Austin saw an individual running west on 10th Street and then turned left on Patton. Austin remained at work but did not go to the scene of the shooting. At 1.06 PM, Margie Higgins, who lived at 417 East Tenth, was watching television. She told reporters, quote, Well, I was watching the news on television, and for some reason I turned around and looked at the clock. And the announcer said the time was six minutes after one, 1.06 p.m. At that point, I heard the shots. Mrs. Higgins described the shooter and said, quote, he definitely was not the man they showed on television. Mrs. Higgins was perhaps the first citizen to call the police. At 1.06 p.m., taxi driver Scoggins, sitting in his taxi at 10th and Patton, heard three shots. Mrs. Doris Holden lived directly across the street from the Tippett shooting on the second floor at 4.09 East 10th. She heard the shots at 1.06 p.m., ran to her bedroom window on the second floor, looked out the window, and saw the shooter hurrying towards Patton. Mrs. Frank Wright lived at 5.01 East 10th, a half a block from where Tippett was shot. At 1.06, 1.07, she heard three shots, looked out her window, and saw a man lying in the street. She ran to her phone, dialed zero, and said to the operator, Call the police. A man's been shot. When the police received Mrs. Wright's call, they pushed a button that connected directly with the ambulance dispatcher. An ambulance was dispatched from Dudley Hughes Ambulance Service, less than two blocks from Tenth and Patton. She was likely the second person to call the police. Mrs. Wright's husband, Frank, ran outside and, quote, saw a woman come down from her porch, or four doors from the intersection of 10th and Patton. I heard her shout, he's been shot. She then went back up toward the house. This woman, Mrs. is Anne McCravey, lived at 404 East 10th Street, was never interviewed by the Dallas Police, the FBI, or the Warren Commission. She was, however, interviewed by the British Broadcasting Corporation. 106-107. Deputy Sheriff Roger Craig was searching the sixth floor of the book depository when a rifle was found. Craig wrote, quote, At that exact moment, a Dallas police officer came running up the stairs and advised Captain Fritz that a policeman had been shot in the Oak Cliff area. I instinctively looked at my watch. Time was 1.06 p.m. 106 or 107, Barbara Jeanette Davis heard shots, walked to her front door, saw the shooter walking through her yard towards Patton Street. She then called the police and reported the police officer had been shot. Barbara Davis was probably the third citizen to call the police. At 106 to 107, Jimmy Burt said he heard six shots and within seconds drove with his friend, William Smith in his 1952 two-tone Ford, a half block west to the scene of the shooting. After the assassination, Burt and Smith were shown Harvey Oswell's photographs, and both men said this was not the man who shot Tippett. Now, Burt's observation of the shooter and his memory of events are important for two specific reasons. When Burt first saw the shooter hurrying south on Patton Street, he was wearing a light-colored Eisenhower-type jacket. But when Burt saw the same man as he left the parking lot in the Texaco station, walking towards Crawford Street, the shooter was wearing the same light-colored jacket. That's very important because the shooter had not discarded his jacket in the parking lot if he was waiting or running across the alley to get into a car. And Bert saw him with his jacket on. So now we've got... Lee Oswald did not discard his jacket in the Texaco parking lot. Now when Jimmy Burt returned to the scene of the shooting, the ambulance had not yet arrived. But Burt said people were talking to a policeman. The only policeman present at the scene of the Tippett's murder prior to the ambulance was Sergeant Croy. The FBI and Warren Commission ignored witnesses who placed the time of the Tippett shooting at one oh six. The time of the shooting had to be at least seven to eight minutes later, because Oswald needed at least fourteen minutes to walk from his rooming house to 10th and Patton. If the Tippett shooting occurred at 106, then Oswald would only have three minutes to walk to 10th and Patton, which was impossible and would have showed Harvey Oswald could not have murdered Tippett. The times recorded on the dictabelts belts and discs had to be changed. The Dallas police dicta belts and discs were sealed on the afternoon of November 22nd and given to the FBI. The FBI quickly learned that the times on the dicta belts and discs had to be changed. Harvey Oswald was last seen near his rooming house at 1 o'clock to 1.01 p.m. The time required for him to walk from his rooming house to the scene of the tippet shooting was an absolute minimum of 14 to 16 minutes. This would fix the time of the shooting at about 1.16 or later. However, according to numerous witnesses, Officer Tippett was shot and killed 10 minutes earlier at 1.06. Frank Cimino, Albert Austin, Francis Kent thought the time was slightly earlier, about 1 o'clock p.m. The timing of the shooting was critical because if the shooting did occur at 1.06 p.m., then Harvey Oswald could not have walked to 10th and Patton in 3 minutes and could not have shot Tippett. During the past 60 years, numerous researchers have relied on the times noted on the Dallas Police typewritten transcripts. They have argued continuously as to whether or not Oswald could have walked from his rooming house to 1026 Beckley to 10th and Patton in 14 to 16 minutes. Warren Commission supporters claim there was sufficient time for Oswald to have walked to 10th and Patton and shoot Tippett, while Warren Commission critics have claimed there was not sufficient time. Unfortunately, researchers' efforts in this regard have been a total waste of time. The original Dallas police dicta belts and discs recorded the time when Benavides, Boldy, Calloway, L.J. Lewis, Mrs. Frank Wright, Margie Higgins, and taxi driver Scoggins' dispatcher reported the shooting to the police dispatcher. These dicta belts and discs were sealed on November 22nd and given to the FBI. The times recorded on the original dictabelts and discs were altered to show the time of the shooting at 1.16. Warren Commission received three typewritten transcripts of police logs, which, if all transcripts were transcribed from the same dictabelts and disks, they should have been identical. However, all three of the typewritten transcripts are different. From the altered dictabelts and disks, the Warren Commission concluded, quote, The shooting of Officer Tippett has been established at approximately 1.15 or 1.16 p.m. Researchers should have questioned why these typewritten transcripts were different. If researchers had focused their attention on the Dallas Police transcripts and the discs, they would have soon learned that these recordings had been altered. Dallas Police Sergeant J.C. Bowles, the radio room supervisor who prepared the transcripts for the Warren Commission, stated that a few days after the assassination federal agents borrowed the original dictabelt, and at the time was under the impression they took the tapes to a recording studio in Oklahoma. Dr. James Barger, chief acoustic scientist for the House Select Committee, studied the original police tapes and discovered a break in the 60-cycle hum background tone. He found two separate tones on the tapes, which could only result from copying. In March 1982, the dictabelts were examined by experts. And found to have evidence of alteration. Dallas researcher Gary Mack interviewed Captain Bowles of the Dallas Police Department who told Mack he could not give any assurance that the belts which were returned by the FBI were the ones left which left the possession of the Dallas police. If people are interested in the alteration of times on the police dicta belts and how the alterations were done I have prepared a detailed analysis that can be found on the Harvey and Lee website. Scroll down and look for the caption, Murder of Officer Tippett. When Westbrook testified before the Warren Commission, he tried to conceal the actual time of his arrival at the Book Depository, which was around 1.20 p.m. Westbrook told the Warren Commission that after walking to the Book Depository, quote, I contacted my sergeant, R.D. Stringer, and he was standing in front, and so I then went into the building to start help the search, and I was on the first floor, and I had walked down an aisle and opened the door onto a loading dock, and when I came out on this dock, one of the men hollered and said there had been an officer killed in Oak Cliff, end quote. Westbrook was trying to make it appear that he was at the book depository when Tippett was shot around 116, according to the Warren Commission. In reality, when Westbrook arrived at the Book Depository, it was around 1.20, 14 minutes after Tippett was shot at 1.06 p.m. The police had already sealed the building, the rifle and empty shells had been located, the sniper's nest identified, and building manager Roy Truly had already told Chief Lumpkin that Lee Harvey Oswald was missing from the building. In Oak Cliff, Officer Tippett had been put into an ambulance at 1.11, taken to the hospital, and pronounced dead at 1.15 p.m. All of these things happened while Westbrook and Croy were in Oak Cliff before Westbrook returned to the book depository in car 207. Later, Captain Westbrook changed his story about learning of the Tippett shooting on the dock of the first floor. This time, Westbrook told the Warren Commission that he heard about the shooting of a police officer, quote, on his radio. It's important to remember that Westbrook said, his radio, which was the radio in Westbrook's dark blue unmarked police car parked near the book depository. This was the car that Westbrook drove from police headquarters to the book depository with Sergeant Croy at 1235 p.m. Westbrook told the Warren Commission that he quote, ran to my radio, my radio, because I'm the personnel officer. And that then became, of course, my greatest interest at that time. And so Sergeant Stringer and I and some patrolman, I don't recall his name, then drove to the immediate vicinity of where Officer Tippett had been shot and killed. End quote. That's what Westbrook told the Warren Commission. But Westbrook was lying. Again, Westbrook lied when he told the Warren Commission that he got into a police car and an officer drove him to the immediate vicinity of where Tippett had been shot and killed. Westbrook lied when he said, I don't know where this officer went after he let us out at the scene. More lies. Westbrook was not driven anywhere by a police officer, and Westbrook did not arrive at the scene of the Tippett murder. The truth about many of Westbrook's activities and whereabouts during the early afternoon of November 22nd were reported by Dallas Morning News reporter Jim Ewell. At 1.20 p.m., as Westbrook was preparing to leave the book depository and drive to Oak Cliff, news reporter Jim Ewell was nearby, listening to the police dispatcher's report about the shooting of a police officer. Ewell asked Westbrook if he could ride along and said, quote, it happened that quickly. I left the location at the school book depository and jumped into a car driven by Captain Westbrook with Sergeant Stringer. I rode in the back seat as we sped across into Oak Cliff by taking the Houston Street Viaduct, end quote. Westbrook told the Warren Commission that he was driven to the immediate vicinity of where officers had been shot and killed, which was yet another lie. Westbrook drove his own blue unmarked police car with Sergeant Stringer in the front seat and news reporter Jim Ewell in the back seat. But Westbrook did not drive anywhere where Tippett had been shot and killed. Westbrook drove from the book depository directly to McCandle's Market on Jefferson Boulevard, where Jim Ewell got out of the car and walked into the market. Ewell placed a phone call to the city desk at the Dallas Morning News and told his employer that he was in Oak Cliff. Sergeant Stringer got out of the car and joined fellow officers in shaking down buildings looking for the suspect. This is around 1.25 p.m. Captain Westbrook was then alone in his dark blue unmarked police car on Jefferson Boulevard. In the author's opinion, Westbrook drove a half a block west on Jefferson Boulevard, past the Texaco station, turned right on Crawford Street, and then drove about 150 feet to the alley between the parking lot and the Abundant Life Church. On the left side of the alley, the north side, was the backside of the Abundant Life Church. On the right side of the alley, south, was the Texaco parking lot. In the Texaco parking lot, a jacket was found under a 1954 Oldsmobile. This jacket was most likely thrown under this car by Westbrook. In other words, the jacket was planted by Westbrook. It's no accident that Westbrook drove from the book depository directly to the car lot behind the Texaco station and then just happened to be in the exact place where the jacket was found a few minutes after he arrived, was there any reason other than finding the shooter's jacket for Westbrook to drive directly to the parking lot behind the Texaco station? After placing the jacket underneath the Oldsmobile, Westbrook continued driving east through the alley to Patton Street, turned right on Jefferson Boulevard, and parked his dark blue unmarked police car near the Texaco station. He then walked to a house on the east side of the parking lot that police officers were searching. It's important to remember that Westbrook told the Warren Commission, I am personnel officer. We conduct all background investigations of applicants, both civilian and police, and then we we investigate all personal complaints. Not all of them, but the major ones. Why then does a personnel officer wearing civilian clothes and working at a desk job in an office at police headquarters, he involve himself in a homicide investigation. How and why did Westbrook drive directly to the parking lot behind the Texco station if not to plant the jacket under the Oldsmobile? How was Westbrook able to find Oswald's jacket only minutes after arriving in the parking lot? How was Westbrook able to acquire a wallet With identification for Lee Harvey Oswald and Alec James Heidel, which he showed to fellow police officers at the Tippett murder scene. Because Westbrook was a co-conspirator, and he was given both the light-colored Eisenhower type jacket and the wallet, the second wallet, from Lee Oswald, when he transported Lee Oswald to the Texas theater. Westbrook tried to explain his involvement to the Warren Commission, quote, I am the personnel officer, And that then became, of course, my greatest interest right at that time. But Westbrook's actions and his whereabouts that afternoon show that the murder of Tippett was not his greatest interest. Westbrook did not drive directly to the scene of the Tippett murder at 10th and Patton. Westbrook did not drive to the hospital where Tippett was taken by ambulance. Westbrook did not visit or telephone Tippett's wife later in the day. Westbrook's priority and destination was the parking lot behind the Baloo Texaco station on East Jefferson, where the light-colored jacket, given to him by Lee Oswald 15 minutes earlier, was either planted or thrown by Westbrook under the 1954 Oldsmobile. Was there any reason, other than finding the shooter's jacket, for Westbrook to drive from the book depository directly to the parking lot behind the Texaco station? There was, however, a problem with the jacket that soon became apparent to Westbrook. Did anyone see the person who threw this jacket under the car? Who did the jacket belong to? How long had the jacket been laying under the car? Did anyone see the person who removed this jacket? How can the police connect the jacket with the man who shot Tippett? How to explain Westbrook quickly locating this jacket in the large parking lot? and how to explain that nobody saw this jacket until after Westbrook arrived in the parking lot. Motorcycle officer John R. Mackey was in the parking lot behind the Texaco station. Mackey said, quote, about the time we reached the area, the dispatcher was broadcasting information regarding the suspect and his escape route. We pulled up on Jefferson and started checking some cars parked behind a service station. To see if the suspect was hiding in or under one of the cars. That's when we found his jacket. We saw Captain Westbrook in his car on Jefferson, so I turned the jacket over to him. Mackey said that he turned the jacket over to Westbrook. But when questioned by the Warren Commission, Westbrook said that he could not remember the name of the officer who found the jacket. Westbrook told the Warren Commission, I walked on toward the parking lot behind the Texaco service station, and some officer said, look, there's a jacket under the car. Saw so walked over, reached under, picked up the jacket. Westbrook said he picked up the jacket. In 1978, JFK researcher Larry Ray Harris interviewed former police officer John Mackey, who refused to discuss the jacket. Mackey told Harris, quote, That information might be something they, senior Dallas police officials, don't want given out. I doubt that senior Dallas police officials would care whether it was Westbrook or Mackey who found the jacket. However, senior Dallas police officials would not want to give out any information that suggested Captain Westbrook was somehow connected with finding the jacket. While Westbrook's and Mackey's story may differ, motorcycle patrolman Thomas Hudson had another version of finding the jacket. Hudson, who was about 25 yards away, told the House Select Committee that he saw Captain Westbrook standing in the alley, holding the jacket. Officer Hudson was questioned by the Warren Commission. Mr. Bellin. All right, now prior to that time, had there been any recovery of any items of clothing? Mr. Hudson. Yes, sir. Mr. Bellin. When did that occur? Mr. Hudson. That occurred while we were searching the rear of the house in the 400 block of East Jefferson Boulevard at the rear of the Texco station. I was approximately 25 yards away from it from the officer who picked it up. Captain Westbrook was there behind the house with us and he was there at the time this was picked up with the man, but I don't know who had it in their hands. The only time I saw it was when the officer had it. When Captain Westbrook was interviewed by the Warren Commission, he not only repeatedly lied about his whereabouts and his activities on November 22nd, he also intentionally tried to distance himself completely from Oswald's jacket and from the Tippett shooting. Prior to his testimony, Westbrook wrote a resume of his activities, which he provided to the Warren Commission, but there was no reference to finding the jacket, handling the jacket in the Texaco parking lot, or of Westbrook entering the jacket into evidence. When Moran Commission attorney Joseph Ball began to question Westbrook about finding and handling the jacket, he asked Westbrook, when did this happen? You sort of gave me a resume of what you had done, but you omitted this incident. Westbrook clearly was trying to distance himself from the jacket. Westbrook told Mr. Ball, actually, I didn't find it. It was pointed out to me by some other officer. Someone pointed out a jacket to me and that it was laying under a car. I got the jacket and I told the officer to take the license number, end quote. Once again, Westbrook, the head of personnel, couldn't remember the name of the officer who supposedly discovered the jacket. Westbrook then told the commission that he turned the jacket over to one of the officers. Once again, he could not remember the name of this officer. Westbrook, in charge of personnel, could not remember the name of a single police officer with whom he came in contact that afternoon. More lies from Westbrook, trying to conceal his involvement with the jacket and with the Tippett murder. At 1.25 p.m., only one minute after finding the jacket, the police dispatcher received a call from Unit Number 279, who reported, quote, the suspect had dumped it, the jacket, on this parking lot, Behind the service station at four hundred block east Jefferson. End quote. The police dispatcher then replied, He had a white jacket on. We believe this is it. What made Unit 279 believe the suspect had dumped his jacket? Was there a witness who saw the shooter discard the jacket? The police dispatch logs show that unit number two hundred seventy-nine reported finding the jacket but the log does not identify this officer by name. Unit 279 was used by two officers, J.T. Griffin and J.R. Mackey, but only Mackey was in the parking lot next to the Texaco station. And why would motorcycle patrolman Mackey radio in such important information when Captain Westbrook was with him? I believe the officer who identified himself to the dispatcher as Unit 279 was not Mackey, but was Captain Westbrook, who used Mackey's unit number when he called the dispatcher. Interested readers should listen to the Dallas Police Department Police Dispatch recording of Unit 279. The voice is that of a middle-aged man. Westbrook? Not a young man. Mackey. Why was Mackey never interviewed by the FBI, the Secret Service, the Warren Commission, or the HSCA? and asked about finding and identifying the suspect's jacket. Because Mackey may have said that it was Westbrook who found the jacket. Finding the jacket was important, but there was a big problem. Whose jacket was it? How do you connect this jacket with the man who shot and killed Tippett? Captain Westbrook needed a witness to connect the jacket to the shooter. So he invented one. At 1.34 p.m., Captain Westbrook reported to the police dispatcher, quote, We got a witness that's seen him go north. After, she his jacket, end quote. But Captain Westbrook was once again lying. Westbrook never, ever had such a witness. But Westbrook desperately needed a witness to say that the jacket belonged to the man who matched the description of the shooter. Without a witness... There was no way to connect the jacket to the man who shot Tippett. Westbrook was the one and only police officer who said there was a witness that saw the suspect shed his jacket, but no such witness was ever identified or located. More lies from Captain Westbrook while attempting to link the jacket to the shooter. Captain Westbrook quickly left the parking lot and drove a few blocks east to the library in response to a report that a suspicious man was seen entering the building. After Sergeant Owens reported it was the wrong man at the library, Captain Westbrook drove to the Tippett murder scene at 10th and Patton, arriving for the first time at 1.37 to 1.38 p.m. While at 10th and Patton, Westbrook needed to be very careful. If Westbrook was the man seen by Domingo Benavides, Mrs. Holand, and other witnesses inspecting Tippett's body after he was shot and killed, then Westbrook's return to 10th and Patton had to be very brief. Otherwise, witnesses may have identified Westbrook as being at the scene of Tippett's murder. Captain Westbrook had a very good reason for driving to 10th and Patton, but it had nothing to do with Officer Tippett. It was there, at Tenth and Patton, that Westbrook showed fellow police officers identification cards for Lee Harvey Oswald and Alec James Heidel from a second wallet. I believe that Lee Oswald gave this wallet to Westbrook a half an hour earlier when Westbrook drove him to the Texas Theater. There were now many police and dozens of onlookers at Tenth and Patton. Fortunately for Westbrook, nobody recognized him as the man who was with Lee Oswald when Tippett was shot and killed. These ID cards were from the second Oswald wallet. The Selective Service card had Oswald's photo and the name Alec James Heidel, which identified Oswald as the man who ordered the rifle from Klein's Sporting Goods using the name Heidel. It is important to understand and remember that when Westbrook and fellow police officers were looking through a wallet with Alec James Heidel and Lee Harvey Oswald's ID cards, Harvey Oswald was sitting in the Texas theater with a wallet in his rear pants pocket. FBI agent Bob Barrett arrived at 1.42 p.m., parked his car across the street from Scoggins' taxi, and walked towards Tippett's patrol car. Barrett explained, quote, I went on over there and Captain Westbrook was there with several of his officers. It hadn't been very long when Westbrook looked up and saw me and called me over. He had this wallet in his hand. Now, I don't know where he found it, but he had the wallet in his hand. The wallet was there. There's no getting around that. Westbrook had the wallet in his hand and asked me if I knew who these people were. I'm adamant that there was a wallet in somebody's hand and Westbrook asked me if I knew who Lee Harvey Oswald was and who Heidel were. And as Westbrook asked Baird about Oswald and Heidel, WFAA TV, Channel 8 news photographer, Ron Ryland, filmed the wallet. Sergeant Bud Owens was holding the wallet while Captain Doherty looked at the wallet. Westbrook's possession, of a second wallet at 10th and Patton shows that he knew both Lee Oswald and Harvey Oswald. Westbrook was involved with the pre planned murder of Officer Tippett and was instrumental in identifying Harvey Oswald as the man who murdered Tippett and the man who owned the rifle found in the book depository. Harvey Oswald was now the one and only suspect in the murder of both Officer Tippett and President Kennedy. If for any reason Harvey Oswald had not been found and arrested in the Texas Theater, a nationwide manhunt would have begun for the former defector to the Soviet Union, the communist supporter of Castro, and the man who ordered the rifle found on the sixth floor of the book depository. The second Oswald wallet, produced and shown by Captain Westbrook, was taken to police headquarters but was never entered into evidence, never initialed by any Dallas police officer, never turned over to the Identification Bureau or the Homicide Department, and never mentioned in a police report or FBI report or discussed with the Warren Commission. This wallet, shown only to police officers and to FBI agent Barrett for only a few minutes, was last seen in Captain Westbrook's hands and then disappeared forever. You're listening to Black Op Radio. In March 1996, FBI agent James Hosty published his book, Assignment Oswald. For the first time, Hosty described how Captain Westbrook showed a wallet to fellow police officers at Denton Patton that contained identification for Lee Harvey Oswald and for Alex James Heidel. Hosty's book contains photos of the wallet and FBI agent Barrett's first-hand account of Westbrook asking him if he knew Lee Harvey Oswald or Alec Heidel. Hostie, however, was unable to explain how or where Westbrook acquired the wallet, nor could he explain what Westbrook did with the wallet after leaving Tenth and Patton. When JFK researchers first learned about the second wallet from Hostie's book in early 1996, they were anxious to interview Westbrook. They soon learned that only a few weeks before Hostie's book was released, Captain Westbrook died at age 78 of cancer on February 21st, 1996. After learning of the death of Westbrook, researcher Jones Harris arranged for an interview with a first police officer at Tenth and Patton, Sergeant Kenneth Croy. For the first time, Sergeant Croy was asked what he knew about the wallet and told Harris that an unknown witness gave him the wallet. But Reserve Officer Croy never explained why he didn't turn the wallet over to detectives or crime scene investigators who arrived ten minutes after the shooting. In my opinion, Sergeant Croy never saw or touched this wallet or the Alec James Hydell identification cards. It should not surprise anyone to learn there never was and never has been any evidence to support or verify Croy's claim that an unknown witness gave him the wallet. Not one witness, not one ambulance driver, not one neighbor, and not one bystander or anyone saw a wallet lying on the ground. In Tippett's patrol car, anywhere, Ted Calloway had arrived at the murder scene before Tippett's body was loaded in the ambulance. Calloway said, quote, I'll tell you one thing, there was no billfold at that scene. If there was, there would have been too many people who would have seen it. Neither Westbrook, Croy, Captain Fritz, nor any police officers from Tenth and Patton told the Warren Commission or the House Select Committee on Assassinations anything about Westbrook showing a second Oswald wallet to police officers at the Tippett murder scene. Question. Where did Westbrook get a second wallet with identification for Heidel and Oswald? if not directly from Lee Oswald. At 1.42 p.m., crime lab officers George Doherty and W.E. Barnes arrived and began checking for fingerprints on Tippett's car. JFK researcher and author Dale Myers sought to answer the questions of whether or not the fingerprints found by Sergeant Barnes belonged to Lee Harvey Oswald. Myers obtained crime lab photos of the prints found by Barnes on Tippett's car and Oswald's fingerprint card taken when he was arrested. Myers then asked the senior crime technician for Wayne County, Michigan, Herbert Lutz, to compare the two sets of prints. Myers wrote in his book, With Malice, that Lutz reported the furrows of the fingerprints taken from Tippett's car were wide, while Oswald's fingerprint furrows were much narrower. In addition, the number of ridges and location of the bifurcations in the patterns were different. Lutz concluded the fingerprints taken by Dallas police from Tippett's patrol car were not those of Lee Harvey Oswald. These fingerprint cards were never entered into evidence nor published in the 26 volumes. After showing the second wallet and Heidel cards to fellow police officers at Tenth and Patton, Westbrook returned to the Texaco parking lot with news photographer Ron Ryland, who took a brief film clip of a op- police officer holding the Eisenhower-type jacket. News reporter Jim Ewell said, quote, I was with Westbrook as we all went over to examine the jacket because it was the only tangible thing we had at the moment that belonged to the killer. In fact, I held the jacket in my hands. Westbrook did not initial the jacket. Instead, he had crime lab personnel Barnes and Doherty initial the jacket in order to conceal his involvement with the jacket. Westbrook told the Warren Commission, when I left this scene, I turned this jacket over to one of the officers and I went by that church. And I think that would be on 10th street. But captain Westbrook was lying once again. He did not give the jacket to any one of the officers. Westbrook held onto the jacket, took the jacket to police headquarters, and wrote a police report about the jacket. Notice that the report on the left side identifies Westbrook as the originator of this police report. The same report on the right, given to the Warren Commission, has a strip of paper that covers Westbrook's name. More cover-up by Westbrook. Westbrook allegedly put the jacket into evidence at 3 p.m., but the jacket was not placed into evidence. Westbrook held on to the jacket for the next week and made sure that it was never shown to Harvey Oswald, who would deny this was his jacket. The jacket was given to FBI agent Vincent Drain on November 28th. In 1978, when questioned about the disposition of the jacket, Captain Westbrook told the House Select Committee, quote, he didn't recall the disposition of the jacket, end quote. At 1.43, a police officer called the dispatcher and said, the jacket the suspect was wearing over here on Jefferson bears a laundry tag with the letter B9738. See if there's any way you can check this laundry tag. The police logs identify the caller as Sergeant Stringer, who worked for Westbrook in the personnel office. However, when interviewed in 1978 by researcher Larry Ray Harris, Stringer said, I never did see the jacket and I didn't radio in on it. It appears that Westbrook, using Sergeant Stringer's call sign, radioed the police dispatcher and provided information about the laundry tag on the jacket. Westbrook, once again, was using another person's call sign in order to conceal his involvement with the jacket. At 1.44, the police dispatcher, after receiving a half a dozen calls about a suspicious man sneaking into the Texas Theater reported, quote, Have information that a suspect just went into the Texas Theater on Jefferson Boulevard, supposed to be hiding in the balcony. News reporter Jim Ewell recalled they were discussing it, the jacket, when the report came in that a suspect had just gone into the Texas Theater. Immediately, Captain Westbrook and Sergeant Stringer ran back to their car, which is across the street, and I ran to jump in the back seat. By that time, they were already turning out and accelerating. When I got in, the backseat door was still hanging open. I came out of the car, hanging onto the door. They slowed down long enough for me to get back in. Captain Westbrook, however, said nothing about running to his car and racing to the Texas theater. Now, Johnny Brewer, an employee of Hardy's Shoe Store on Jefferson Boulevard, claimed to have seen Oswald in the vestibule of his store about 1.30, wearing a long-sleeved, dark-brown shirt. Brewer said this man appeared scared and claimed that he saw this man sneak into the Texas Theater at 1.35 p.m. But Harvey Oswald, wearing a long sleeve dark brown shirt, arrived at the Texas Theater at 1.06 to 1.07 p.m. and purchased popcorn from Butch Burroughs at 1.15. Theater patron Jack Davis watched Oswald as he entered the lower section of the theater and moved from seat to seat. Davis said that Oswald was sitting next to him before the opening credits to the movie began around 120. Lee Oswald, wearing a white t-shirt, entered the Texas theater around 115 and went upstairs to the balcony. Johnny Brewer could not have seen either Harvey or Lee in the vestibule of his store at 1.30, nor did he see either man sneak into the theater at 135. Yet Brewer's police affidavit and his Warren Commission testimony was enough for the commission to conclude that a frightened and suspicious Oswald had snuck into the theater and was hiding from police. Everything Brewer said in the above sworn statements to the police makes no sense. Brewer's description of Oswald's clothing, a brown sports shirt, did not match the police report broadcasts that reported the suspect wearing a white t shirt and a white jacket. Brewer's description of Oswald acting scared did not match police observations of Harvey Oswald after he was arrested. Police officers said Oswald was calm and showed no signs of being scared. Brewer also said he heard on the radio that a policeman had been shot in Oak Cliff, but the first radio broadcasts of a policeman shot in Oak Cliff occurred at 1:51 p.m. by WFAA and at 2:02 p.m. by KLIF Radio. In other words. Nothing Brewer said in his police report made any sense. Julia Postal, cashier at the Texas Theater, was listening to KLIF radio and at 1:36 p.m. heard the official announcement that President Kennedy was dead. Julia said that Johnny Brewer appeared at her ticket booth shortly after she heard the news of President Kennedy's death. Brewer asked Julia if she had sold a ticket to a man who was wearing a brown shirt. And she replied, what man? Again, how would Brewer know that Harvey Oswald was wearing a long sleeve dark brown shirt at 1.36 when Harvey Oswald wearing a long sleeve dark brown shirt had been sitting in the theater since one oh seven p.m.? Warren Commission attorney David Bellin wondered why Brewer would ask Postal if she sold the man a ticket when Brewer supposedly just saw the man sneak into a theater without buying a ticket. Mr. Balin, asked Brewer, why did you ask Julia Postel whether she had or hadn't? Brewer answered, I don't know. Mr. Balin, you asked her? Why did you ask Julia Postel whether she had or hadn't? I don't know. Brewer told Julia Postel, quote, a man walked in there and I'm going to go inside and ask the usher if he had seen him. Brewer then hurried into the theater and asked Butch Burroughs if he had collected a ticket from a man who thought had just entered the theater and was acting suspicious. But how would Brewer know if this man was acting suspicious? Butch Burroughs indicated correctly that he had not collected a ticket from a man who had snuck into the theater. At this point, there's no indication whatsoever that Johnny Brewer told Postal or Butch Burroughs that the man who snuck into the theater was wearing a long-sleeved, dark-brown shirt. If Brewer had described Oswald's clothing to Butch Burroughs, then locating this person inside of the theater would have been easy. But if Johnny Brewer had located and pointed to Harvey Oswald as the man who was wearing a dark-brown, long-sleeved shirt and snuck into the theater, Burroughs would likely have told Brewer that Oswald did purchase a ticket and had been in the theater since 1.07 p.m. Harvey Oswald, wearing the dark brown shirt, entered the theater at 1.07 p.m. Lee Oswald, wearing a white t-shirt, entered the theater around 1.16 p.m. Brewer and Burroughs didn't find a man who snuck into the theater at 1.35 p.m. because nobody did. And then I've got a question. If you saw someone entering a movie theater, apparently without buying a ticket, how likely is it that you would take any action at all. It's not like it was a violent crime and assault where a victim needed help. It's not your theater. It's not your business. Plus, there might be an extended circumstance, such as already bought a ticket but had to do something else first. Who knows? So at most, you might tell a theater employee that someone snuck into the theater. In this case, Julia Postal. But really, would you take it on yourself to chase this person into the theater? I doubt it. The Warren Commission asked Butch Burroughs what he would do if a person entered the theater without purchasing a ticket. Burroughs replied, I make it a point to stop them and ask them to go out and get a ticket. So neither Butch Burroughs nor Julia Postal would have called the police, even if they had seen a man sneak into the theater. And would the police have responded to a person sneaking into a movie theater? The police were overwhelmed with the shooting of President Kennedy, the shooting of Texas Governor John Connolly, and the murder of Officer Tippett. It is doubtful they would pay much attention to a person who allegedly snuck into a movie theater instead of buying a 90-cent ticket. For a long time, researchers wondered why 26 police officers would respond to a person sneaking into a movie theater. JFK researcher Leo Savage asked Dallas District Attorney Jim Bowie if the one telephone call by Julia Postal to the police had caused 26 police officers to converge on the movie theater and arrest Oswald. Bowie told Salvage there was a call from the cashier, but there were, quote, half a dozen calls to the police concerning a suspicious man sneaking into the theater. A half a dozen calls to the police by a person or persons unknown, all identifying this man as suspicious? This is a clear indication of a concerted effort to focus police attention on the Texas Theater. After a half a dozen phone calls to the police, the dispatcher finally reported that a suspicious man had gone into the Texas Theater. Twenty-six police officers, mostly from Tenth and Patton, quickly arrived at the Texas Theater. But it is very important to understand that Captain Westbrook was the first to arrive at the theater with news reporter Jim Ewell sitting in the back seat. According to the Warren Commission, it was Johnny Brewer who raised such a commotion that Julia Postle finally called the police at 1.44 p.m. But why did Johnny Brewer raise such a commotion? And why in the world did Brewer think that Harvey Oswald snuck into the theater at 1.35 Oswald had been in the theater since 107? The answer is simple. Brewer was told by a fellow employee at Hardy's shoe store that a suspicious man wearing a brown shirt snuck into the theater. Johnny Brewer saw nothing. The answer is simple. Brewer was told by a fellow employee at Hardy's shoe store that a suspicious man wearing a brown shirt snuck into the theater. Brewer saw nothing. Not long after the assassination, one of Brewer's co-workers, Tommy Rowe, was interviewed by Penn Jones, Jr., publisher of the Midlothian Mirror. Rowe told Penn Jones and many of his relatives that it was he, not Brewer, who pointed out Oswald to the police. But how did Tommy Rowe know that Oswald was in the theater and wearing a brown shirt? Tommy Rowe could only have known about Harvey Oswald if Oswald's arrival in the Texas theater was pre-planned. The Tippett murder was pre-planned. Harvey Oswald's arrival at the Texas theater was pre-planned. In fact, I believe that Westbrook, Tippett, Lee, Oswald, Croy, and Jack Ruby all knew about the pre-arranged plan for Harvey Oswald to go to the Texas theater. However, Harvey Oswald first learned that he was to go to the Texas theater after president kennedy was shot and i believe the man who instructed oswald to go to the theater was most likely bill shelley tommy rowe was a very close personal friend of jack ruby i believe that jack ruby knew all about the prearranged plan to murder tippett knew that harvey oswald would go to the texas theater and knew that oswald would be blamed for the tippett's murder after briefly showing up at parkland hospital Ruby drove to the Texas theater and sat in a seat near the concession area. Ruby watched Harvey Oswald move from seat to seat. He then got in touch with Tommy Rowe at the shoe store. Ruby then waited patiently while Rowe prodded Johnny Brewer to go to the Texas theater and try and locate a suspicious man wearing a brown sports shirt. In late 1963, Tommy Rowe moved into Jack Ruby's apartment after Ruby killed Oswald. Four years later, when Garrison investigators interviewed Roe in 1967, he was still living in Ruby's old apartment at 223 South Ewing Street. Roe told the investigators that was he who told store manager Johnny Brewer that a man wearing a brown shirt had snuck into the Texas theater. It was Tommy Rowe who first knew about Oswald in the theater, not Johnny Brewer. All Tommy Rowe had to do was prod Johnny Brewer into believing that a suspicious man snuck into the Texas theater, which he did. Brewer closed the shoe store, hurried to the theater, and eventually coerced Julia Postal into calling the police. After the police received Julia Postal's call and a half a dozen more phone calls, the police dispatcher reported that a suspicious man had snuck into the theater. I suspect that it was Captain Westbrook, The highest-ranking police officer at Tenth and Patton, who directed the 26 police officers to converge on the Texas theater. After Johnny Brewer closed the shoe store, he hurried to the alley behind the theater. There were two exit doors into the alley and Brewer entered the door on the west corner of the building. Tommy Rowe bought a ticket, entered the theater, and took a seat near the stage and close to the aisle. Johnny Brewer was standing behind the curtains. On the western edge of the stage with police officers. Brewer told the Warren Commission, I and two or three other officers walked out onto the stage and I picked him out. But Nick McDonald, the police officer who confronted Oswald, told the Dallas Morning News and the Dallas Times Herald and the Associated Press, quote, I noticed about 10 to 15 people sitting in the theater and they were spread out good. A man sitting near the front, and I still don't know who it was, tipped me that the man I wanted was sitting in the third row from the rear on the ground floor and not in the balcony. The tipster was Tommy Rowe who worked with Brewer at Hardy's shoe store. Someone told Rowe that Oswald was wearing a dark brown shirt and sitting in the third row from the rear but not sitting in the balcony. That person was Jack Ruby. Following Harvey Oswald's arrest, the police questioned 36-year-old theater patron, George J. Applin, Jr. Applin was sitting in the third or fourth row from the rear and the third seat in from the aisle, very close to where Oswald was sitting. Applin said nothing to the Dallas police, but told the FBI about talking with an unknown man at the rear of the theater. Two days later, after Ruby shot Oswald, Ruby's face became known to the world. Applin realized this was the man with whom he talked in the theater, and now Applin was scared, and he told nobody, that he saw Ruby in the theater. Five months later, in April 1964, Appleton told the Warren Commission, I don't even know if this has any bearing on this case, but there was one guy sitting in the back row right there where I was standing at. And I said to him, Buddy, you better move. There's a gun. And he says, just sat there, just like this, just watching. Appleton told the Warren Commission, that he didn't know this man. But for some unknown reason, Applin's testimony was marked top secret. 15 years later, in 1979, after the elapse of time made it safer and more plausible to talk, Applin decided to talk with news reporter Earl Goles. Applin told goats quote, at the time the Warren Commission had me down there at the post office, I was afraid to give it. I am a pretty nervous guy anyway. After I saw that magazine where all those people said they were kind of connected with some of this had come up dead, it just kind of made me keep a low profile. Appleton told Goltz the man he talked to in the theater, who was watching the police as they subdued and arrested Harvey Oswald, was definitely Jack Ruby. If Ruby was in the Texas theater, then he could have easily telephoned Tommy Rowe at the shoe store and said that Oswald was in the theater and described the clothes Oswald was wearing, while Harvey Oswald was scuffling and being subdued by police. Officer McDonald allegedly grabbed the 38 revolver from Harvey's Oswald's hand and passed it to Officer Bob Carroll. I say allegedly because there's a possibility that one of the police officers may have planted the 38 revolver on Oswald. Epplin told the Warren Commission, quote, "Well." the gun didn't come into view until after about four or five officers were there, end quote. Epplin also said the man who had the gun, quote, had on a short-sleeve shirt, end quote. And I see this man's arm was connected to the gun. Oswald was wearing a dark brown long-sleeve shirt. In 1978, Epplin told the House Select Committee, the revolver that Oswald came up with came out of one of the officers' holster. In 1998, Gus Rose told D Magazine that during the questioning, Oswald said, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't own a gun. I don't have a gun. They planted that gun on me when they arrested me. Several witnesses and police officers in the theater heard the revolver snap and believed the gun had misfired. George Applin told the Warren Commission, quote, one of the officers hollered out, don't let nobody see him. After Harvey Oswald was handcuffed, Captain Westbrook ordered his officers to, quote, cover his face because Westbrook knew that Lee Oswald was also in the theater. Westbrook was worried that someone might see both Harvey Oswald and Lee Oswald, who looked very much alike, in the theater. It would be difficult to explain why two young men with very similar looks were in the Texas theater at the same time. That is why Captain Westbrook wanted Harvey Oswald's face covered. As Oswald was taken out the front of the theater, a Dallas police officer told Julia Posto, we have our man on both counts, end quote. Julia told FBI agent Carter, this was the first time she heard about Tippett's death and the officers arresting Harvey Oswald had identified him by calling him his name, Oswald. Thanks to Captain Westbrook, and his identification of Lee Harvey Oswald at 10th and Patton. Most of the police officers participating in Oswald's arrest already knew his name before they entered the theater. Captain Westbrook told Lieutenant Cunningham and J.B. Tony to take the names and addresses of each and every person in the theater. Cunningham and Tony remained at the theater and took the names and addresses of the 24 theater patrons. However, there was one young man who had no identification, and that was Lee Oswald, who, in the author's opinion, had previously given his wallet to Captain Westbrook. Another man, Jack Ruby, did have identification, but his name had remained secret. After completing the list, Lieutenant Cunningham and Tony should have given the list of names to the officer in charge, Captain Westbrook. But Westbrook told the Warrant Commission that he didn't know what happened to the list. Westbrook said the list was lost. With the names Lee Oswald and Jack Ruby on the list of theater patrons, the list had to disappear. More lies from Westbrook, and neither Lieutenant Cunningham nor J.B. Tony testified before the Warren Commission. The police escorted Harvey Oswald out the front of the theater and placed him in the rear seat of Westbrook's unmarked police car, Stuart Reed, the man who took photographs of both the front and back of the Mercedes bus on Elm Street at 12:45 p.m. and then took photos of the book depository a few minutes later at 12:50, somehow showed up at the Texas Theater an hour later taking photographs of Oswald's arrest. This photograph shows Oswald as he was taken out of the theater by police and about to be placed in the back seat of Westbrook's unmarked dark blue police car. News reporter Jim Ewell watched as the police brought Harvey Oswald out the front of the Texas theater. Ewell said, The next thing I recall is that I was out on the street with the car that I arrived in, Westbrook's unmarked police car, between me and the officers bringing Oswald out of the theater as they kind of separated the crowd and made an aisle for him to come through to get to the car. I'd say I was about 10 to 12 feet away from Oswald at this time. Ewell said, quote, Oswald then took my place in the back seat of the same car that I arrived in, the car driven to the theater by Westbrook. Officer Bob Carroll carried Oswald's revolver to the police car and handed it to Sergeant Jerry Hill, who worked for Westbrook in the personnel office. Officer Carroll drove with K.E. Lyons sitting on the right and Officer Jerry Hill in the middle of the front seat. Harvey Oswald was in the back seat with Officer Paul Bentley On his left and C.T. Walker on his right. After Westbrook returned to police headquarters, he likely told the officers who took Oswald to police headquarters not to identify his car as the vehicle used to transport Oswald to police headquarters. As a result, not one of the police officers who accompanied Oswald to police headquarters ever said or mentioned that Oswald was driven to police headquarters in Westbrook's unmarked dark blue police car. Every one of these officers wrote reports to Dallas Police Chief Curry describing the arrest of Oswald and transporting him to police headquarters. Officer Bob Carroll, who was driving Westbrook's car, identified the car in his report as, quote, Police Equipment 266. Sergeant Jerry Hill described Westbrook's car as, quote, A car parked in front of the theater, end quote. Officer Walker described Westbrook's car as, quote, plain Squad Car, end quote. Officer Bentley described, Westbrook's car as, quote, a patrol car parked in front of the theater, end quote. Officer Lyon said nothing about Westbrook's car. These five police officers helped to conceal the fact that their supervisor, Captain Westbrook, had driven his unmarked dark blue police car to the Texas theater. And when Westbrook and fellow officers testified before the Warren Commission, they said nothing about Oswald taken to police headquarters in Westbrook's dark blue unmarked police car. In fact, Westbrook told the Warren Commission that he was driven to the Texas Theater by an officer whose name he could not remember. Westbrook, once again, was lying. Nearly everything Westbrook said to the Warren Commission concerning his use of police car 207, Lee Oswald's white jacket, his method of transportation to and from Oak Cliff, his involvement with the Tippett shooting, and his efforts in searching the book depository was just a lie.